0: the business got in my way, the wife got in the way, the kids got in the way. So everything that life offered was getting in the way of me and my new partner, cocaine. Well, God took 30 years of addiction and turned it into 30 years of, yeah, I've been there, I've done that, and here's what might work.
1: We have now entered the month of March. Thank you so much for joining us for the Run the Race podcast. You know, uh, uh, spring will be uh, springing up here in uh, just a few weeks, so hopefully the, uh, the weather will get better wherever you are. Maybe it's been really cold. Um, so, uh, and then, uh, and wet or something like that. Uh, but, uh, hopefully the weather's going to be looking brighter for spring and summer and hopefully the pandemic and all the vaccinations happening, uh, things will start opening up more and more. We, we pray that that is the case. Um, but, uh, I'm here with you now, wherever you are. And, uh, you know, I'm honored on a pretty much weekly basis to talk to some really extraordinary people for this podcast. You know, I typically focus on fitness and or faith. On uh, Run the Race, uh, which you can find on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, and, and we're on SoundCloud and let folks know about it. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the guest I have on this week, uh, really, it, it turned out to be one of my all-time favorite interviews I've ever done. Uh, I got to know uh, this uh, this man um, years ago, working for WTVM, interviewing him. He is a, a local jail chaplain, almost 70 years old. But uh, he, he tells me his story about being a, a cocaine addict for three decades, mostly down in the Miami, Florida area. And now he's here in Columbus, Georgia, where I am. And uh, he has an amazing story. Uh, he's now, you know, um, a jail chaplain here, and uh, the director of a homeless uh, shelter and and uh, different shelters called Safe House Ministries. But he, he tells a story about uh, just going through the addiction for many, many decades and years and all that he lost and how God and, and his sons, he has three sons, how they were a part of his turning point or really being the final straw and talks about healing by faith and and you know gives you some tools of what you can do if you know someone, a family member, a friend, or maybe you yourself dealing with addiction of any kind of, of substance abuse. And, and now he focuses on helping these drug addicts uh, turn their lives around. So really an amazing story from uh, Neil Richardson. You're going to want to hear him. So definitely tune in in the next few minutes for, for that conversation. And, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, overcoming addiction or really, uh, kind of overcoming any poor decisions takes discipline and, uh, so does running. And so, uh, you know, for, uh, I've, I've really kind of tried to increase my running over the last, uh, few months, uh, training for my next marathon and, uh, kind of getting out of my comfort zone a little bit. And so, uh, last month, February of 2021, I ran, Uh, almost 200 miles in in a short month, and the most I've ever run in a month. And uh, for for me, though, uh, I'll tell you this. It's not really about the numbers. Uh, I feel pretty good, better than I expected, pretty, pretty strong after all those miles. I ran 64 miles the last week of February, which is about 10 more miles than I've ever run in a week. Um, but for me, you know, people ask me, "Why do you run so much, Jason?" Uh, the simple answer is, I run to live. I don't live to run. I can stop any time. I'm not addicted to running. But I run to live. Uh, there are a lot more important things in my life. I promise you that. Uh, Jesus, uh, my family, my job—all those things more important than running for me. But I do enjoy it, you know, most of the time. Um, so for me, you know, it's about um, it's about being healthy and facing challenges. Um, Eating what I want, which I enjoy being able to do that. I need to eat a little better uh, so to, to be able to lose some weight while I do all this running. And also, you know, taking care of the body that God gave me. And uh, That's what Chaplain Neil Richardson talks about on this episode of the podcast as we near episode number 60. He uh, talks about how God has healed him and how he feels like it's a priority to take care of himself physically, emotionally, and spiritually uh, to not relapse and, and to now kind of be a good example in a job that he says really matters to him as, uh, as chaplain. He got his uh, bachelor's degree from Jacksonville Baptist Theological Seminary, the Miami campus, back in 1994. And this was, you know, kind of uh, post-addiction as he was trying to turn his life around. He was also before that in military service, two years in the Air Force. Um, So we, we salute him as a military veteran. His current title is Chaplain of the Muskogee County Jail. This is in Columbus, Georgia, about an hour and a half south of Atlanta, and the Executive Director of Safe House Ministries. He talks about that, what he do, does, you know, with his experience of going through addiction for you know thirty years, how he's helping other people come out on the other side, be productive citizens, and uh, you know, look to God for strength to, to get over the things that are really, really difficult. So here's my conversation with Neil. All right, I'd like to welcome uh, Chaplain Neil Richardson to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm honored, Jason. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, we're going to talk about a lot of things today, uh, the different ministries you have here in the Columbus, Georgia area, uh, including uh, you know safe house and being the chaplain at the Muscogee County Jail, and, and you have a uh, a military history and you, and you have fam, some uh, son, sons involved in the military as well. I'm going to talk about a lot of different things. But first, I wanted to kind of um, get your story a little bit because a lot of folks go through some really tough stuff, make some poor decisions in life. And, uh, you know, you you went through that for decades as a, um, a, a cocaine addict for, I think, 30 years. Is yes, that right? Sir. Wow. So, You're originally from Miami, Florida, right? Um, So this is this is a different territory here in uh, in kind of uh, West Georgia. But uh, tell me about uh, how this all got started, because you know your life is a lot different now than it was when you were younger. Wow! Um, (laughs) (laughs) I know we're starting with the heavy stuff. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I spent and let me let me
0: be honest here. I'm not the brightest bulb in the box. You know, there's enough people that get into addiction and realize this is horrible. I need to stop and find a way out. Um, I just kept doing it. And every time I thought maybe it was time, I'd fall flat on my face again. Now, truth be known, I tried to do it all by myself. I tried to fix it. I'm smart. I'll make a plan. I'll live up to the plan. And my plans were never any good. And I just used and used. I kiddingly told somebody the other day, I got so many white chips, I could open a casino. <laughs> wow. there, there'd be no 5 or $10 tables, but we'd have a lot of $1 tables. Yeah. Um, but at some point in time, I made the commitment to give my heart and life to God. And asked Jesus Christ to come into my life and to show me a path to a real life. And he's never failed me since. Wow. I don't need another white chip. I started to create life and start. I went from being um, a divorced man, homeless on the streets, to uh, a father, to somebody physically. I mean, so physically a wreck from the abuse of the drugs and not doing anything to take care of myself. And so, going from that point to building a life, building a building a body, mm-hmm. and finding my mental health and my physical health and then god moving me here to columbus georgia and there's not a chaplain in the muskogee county jail at that time and we made an offer and talked to the sheriff and the sheriff said there needs to be one and people that we met here in the community said we'll help fund it so that the government won't fund it and so we formed a 501c3 and we Went to the sheriff, and he, like anybody, he's a smart man. He said, "So free, <laughs> <laughs> we'll take it,
1: <laughs> deal." Yeah, and and you need ministry. I mean, to to have true rehabilitation. So, and right. and we're gonna talk about that, and and kind of going back. So, how did you start with with the drugs? I mean, how young were you, and, and was there a reason why? Like, okay, I want to escape, or I want something that was it like peer pressure, or or uh, how, how did you get hooked?
0: Well. You know, I can do you the oh poor me story. Um, So my mom's an alcoholic. She's an abuser. Uh, It's all our fault that she is in a miserable shape, so me and and my sister. Um, If it wasn't for us, her life would be perfect, not. Um, So I grew up in alcoholism watching that. Um, I actually made the decision one day to never be like her, so I would never be an alcoholic. And I made plans at 10 years of age, to never be an alcoholic. And I, I took steps. I wish she'd have done some drugs, too, because I, <laughs> I might have made some steps there.
1: <laughs> Not the sins of our fathers and mothers, yeah. right?
0: But, um, and, and so at 13, we had just moved to California. So this was like the third time I'm meeting strangers. And I'm already uncomfortable around people and kind of shy and alone. And I met some people that got high. Mm. and it felt good and it was a wonderful place to go it became never never land mm. and so no matter what was going on in the world i could always smoke a little dope and leave the planet oh, wow and then that just i created a lifestyle that was evil that was wicked and it defeated me and then i wasn't smart enough to know that i'd lost so i kept trying
1: yeah did you feel like that? I mean, you maybe tried other ways to stop, and and would kind of relapse and relapse, and and you know, did you? I mean, did you lose? I mean, you said you got divorced. I mean, you lost a lot uh, on the way down to the your rock bottom, right?
0: Yeah, I owned a business. I had a business. I had employees. I had a wife. I have three sons, and for a good period or a good part of that time, I was a quote unquote successful addict. Hmm. So I could make it to work and make it home and do a little in the bathroom, do a little when the day was over, sneak out and disappear for an evening and somehow get up at crack of dawn and go in and run the business. But at some point in time, the business got in my way. The wife got in the way. The kids got in the way. So everything that life offered was getting in the way of me and my new partner, cocaine. Hmm. So... Ultimately, when you read a lot in the Old Testament, you find that God's definition of an idol. Well, that's what cocaine became for me. Yeah. So I was worshiping an idol, and I gave my. Uh, I lost all capacity.
1: So what was the what was the moment or the because you know, we hear a lot about you have to hit a bottom, and you know that bottom is different for a lot of folks. Sometimes it's way down there. So was this something where you just finally said? God, you can have this, and or you know, He really you know had to bring that healing through the tragedy for you. I had
0: called my oldest son to wish him a happy birthday, and he hung up on me. And so I called my youngest son. Now, they were fairly young at the time, but I called him and I went, "What's what's going on with your big brother? He's acting all yada yada." And he went, "Dad, let's be honest here. You're a drug addict. Maybe it would be better if you just went away." Mm. and you know your youngest kid is the one that is the last one to understand that what an idiot you are Learns <laughs> <laughs> learns <learned> it last <laughs> yeah he's always the one that's going nobody's gonna he said he was um so when when danny said that it ripped my heart out and i said well you know what the smoke and mirrors aren't working um and i don't ever want to hear that again and so i started remembering the look in the eye and maybe you should go away. Mm. And I just said, you know what? That's it. Um, I've proven that I can't do this on my own. There is something stronger than me. And I'm going to ask him, if he will, and do whatever I'm told. Yeah. So so how, how,
1: how did God respond to that? I mean, was it because some people say, you know, they hear God's voice. I mean, was it. What, what did that translate into in your life, you know, to, to get out of that addiction?
0: So it, 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 God forced me to get humble. So he took away everything. My wife, who, by the way, we're good friends today. That's good. Yeah, we're, and we're good parents. And we've, we've done a good job under the circumstances. But, um, you know, she finally did the smart thing and put me out. And and I'm pretty sure this was God saying, okay, the enabler, I'll cut her off. Now he's got no place to turn. Let me just isolate him in the middle of this. So God really, at that point in time, got the cattle prod out and some fences. And I just kept running into the open area. And that meant getting involved in some 12-step meetings. It meant uh, getting a sponsor and starting to getting humble enough to say, I'm not in charge. Mm. um i I got you know i knew early on in my life that god had called me into some kind of ministry but i just said that don't fit (laughs) (laughs) god don't smoke dope so (laughs) yeah this isn't gonna work for us yeah um and so it put me in a position where i i got humble in church too and i submitted to a pastor who i trusted and loved and told him everything and then allowed him to both minister to the pain and to the shame and the guilt and um came underneath his wings wow um so god put god kicked me out of my house <laughs> isolated me on my own that's when i started having to be in shelters um and then put a a, a good godly pastor in my path who walked me and and stayed uh, Quick little rabbit chase, um I had to switch churches because he and I got to be such good friends that he started sharing his stuff with me, and we became accountability partners and then it dawned on us you can't you, we're not doing pastor sheep anymore, yeah, <laughs> we're two friends um and so I had switched churches, and then I would still get together with him as an accountability partner and and he became one of my great friends, but
1: yeah. And you're talking about you know having to end up in shelters. So now you're still in shelters and and still in jail, but on the other side of things. So uh, we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. But I do a quick little fast forward, some rapid fire questions to kind of get to know you a little bit for those who don't know Chaplain Neil Richardson. So I'll kind of fire them your way. You can just kind of quick answers. Uh, first one is, uh, what is your current Job description um, at work and also at home, because I know you have jobs both places. <laughs> um, well, I'm,
0: I'm, I'm, I provide the religious programming within the Muskogee County Jail for the inmates, and I'm also responsible for reentry programming. So how can we prevent inmates from coming back at home? I've been dating this wonderful woman that I met at First Baptist when I first got to Columbus. She was president of the choir. I joined the choir, and we've been dating ever since. And so um, the chain of command is, yes, ma'am. <laughs> <There you go.
1: laughs> yes, ma'am. There you go. There you go. And then you, your three boys, and, and they're, they're all scattered uh, different places, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah, my oldest, Billy, and Billy does event work. And he sets up events all around the country. So he worked the Super Bowl in Miami and it mm-hmm. hasn't worked since. Tim is an aerospace engineer in Washington, D.C. And uh, and then Danny's in the Army.
1: Gotcha. Um, and then uh, the second question of the Fast Four is... Um, What do you do, because we talk about fitness on here, what do you do to stay physically fit? We talked a little bit about it off air, but what do you do on a regular, daily, weekly basis?
0: Every morning I leave my house at 420 and I walk three miles. It's 30 minutes to Lake Bottom Park, two miles if you do the oval, and half a mile back. It's both, uh, I walk fast, so that's my health time, and it's also my prayer time. Because there's not a lot of people in the park at 420.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The people maybe you don't want to hang out with, possibly, yeah. True story. I had a guy pull a gun on me in the park one day. Man. And I
0: started laughing. And he said, what do you think is so funny? I said, they don't charge. Why would I bring money? And he scratched his head and turned around and walked away.
1: (laughs) That's great.
0: And then I lift weights at lunch every day.
1: Gotcha. You don't, and you don't get your a gun pulled out in there. <laughs> <laughs> the um, and uh, what um, do you have like a, a particular um, you know spiritual motto or a particular verse, uh, something that for you you live by that stands out for you?
0: First Thessalonians 5, 16, 17, and eighteen. Pray continuously. Um, be always joyful, and in everything give thanks. Oh, those are
1: three things you just live by those, and you know you'll be golden, right? That's
0: my recovery scripture.
1: There you go. That's awesome, and the last um, is what is something unique about uh, Chaplain Neil Richardson, or that you think is unique? Wow, that's <laughs> a tough one, isn't it? I usually like, give people a heads up on that, so I'm sorry. I didn't. Wow, you
0: set me up for that one. <laughs> <laughs> so Rapid I'm, firing in the kaboom <laughs> at the end. Yes, I'm kind of a private person, you know, and I have a public job. Yeah, but um, I really, I do my. I, I see. I, I read that the difference between an extrovert and an introvert is where you charge your battery. So it's not whether you like being around people. Yeah. It's do you charge your battery around people or do you charge your battery alone? I charge my battery alone. I live in an apartment by myself and I got fish.
1: <laughs> and and but you're uh, all day long on your job you're interacting with people. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that is unique. So there you go. Um and to to kind of uh you know kind of uh, catch up with your story about overcoming this addiction to cocaine after three decades. Um, And then um, you're down in Miami, Florida, which is where you're from. And so how did you end up uh, here in Columbus, Georgia? One of my best friends for years and years was Rob Dahl, who used to own the
0: Nissan dealership in town. And he heard that um, once I had gotten clean and was starting to function, I got uh, necrotizing fasciitis. It's the flesh-eating disease. Mm hmm um, and they carved me up enough that I was going to take a long time relearning how to walk and there was a risk I couldn't talk, um, because they hit the vocal cords when they did this tracheotomy here. Oh. Um, so they saved my life, praise God. Um, I was going to have to do a lot of, re- I mean, I had to use a brace to walk, uh, because of the nerve damage that had been done from all the debridements. So Rob called up and he said, why don't you move to Columbus and sell cars. And I went, so let me see if I understand this. I worked in politics at that time. The second lowest person on the public opinion polls were politicians, the lowest was car salesmen. So I said, You want me to take a plunge to the bottom? Well, this is God continuing to humble you, right? (laughs) You're talking about bottoms. (laughs) Um, And then you want me to move in the woods and leave the city. And you have winter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I said, so no. Yeah. But I couldn't find a job. And so I finally called Rob up and I said, you know something? I think God's cut, closed every door except that offer that you gave. So why don't I show up? So I moved here in July, 12 years ago, 12 and a half years ago. Um, I had been a volunteer Chaplain in the jails in Miami, because of my story, they would wanted me to come in and tell inmates my story. Um, so when I got here, I started volunteering. Yeah, and that's how I ended up at the jail.
1: Wow. So uh, I mean, do you um, truly call it? A, do you feel it's a calling to do what you're doing now as jail chaplain and leader of like Safe House Ministries, where you're you're helping the homeless and not just giving them you know food or shelter, but really kind of, um, forming a bonds with them and talking to them about Christ. Um, do you feel like this is your, you know, Neil Richardson's call in life?
0: Yeah. When, when I started being a volunteer in this jail and still working, God just really created a, a heavy burden for the inmates, not having programming and opportunities that they needed. And I originally went and started talking to some of the pastors in town to see if we could raise the money, and and Beck and I were sitting talking one night, and she just said, "You just that's all you talk about." And I said, "God won't get this off my chest." I said, "So we have to get this done." She said, "Well, what are you going to do?" And I said, "We're going to raise enough money, and I'm going to interview some people, and I'll hire us a chaplain." And she said, "But you're the chaplain," and I went, "What are you nuts?" <laughs> and so you know, as as has been. Part of my journey. Sometimes God needs extra people to get involved in saying, "You still don't get it, do you, kid?"
1: <laughs> <laughs> so he has this neon sign, and okay, here's now I'm going to hit you over the head with a with a, a hammer or something, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and then brings yes, ma'am, in. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes, getting her involved. So, um, so what's your uh, typical day like as a jail chaplain? Because think people think of you go on there and do like uh, you know where you preach to the to the inmates or have a music service or. Um, do they come to you for confession? I mean, tell me about, like, maybe maybe there's some misconceptions out there about what a jail chaplain does.
0: So um, we have an electronic request system so that inmates can hit a kiosk in their areas and say, if I need a Bible, I need a devotional. So um, Evangel Temple gives us word for today. We get some daily breads. We get some Bibles that we get donated and some books. So I have to open that up, and I've got, anywhere from 60 to a hundred requests. And so it might be, can you come talk to me? Um, I think of uh, my mom is in the hospital. So I start off with figuring out who's asking for what and making sure that those needs get met today. Then we have families that call because, um, his sister is in the hospital. So-and-so got hit by a car. Um, So there's going to be some bereavement movement. I got to go pull people out and tell them what just happened and work with them and pray with them and try to minister to them in this grief place when they're trapped inside that building to begin with. Um, In the beginning of the ministry, there are 28 open dorms. I preached a message 28 times. Hmm. Um, I remember I told you I'm slow, so... (laughs) <laughs> um, God would give me a message and we would prepare it and then I would do it 28 times and then when I was driving home it would finally make sense that it took God 28 times for me to hear the message <laughs> and, and all the other people got to hear the story too but he, he, he knew it was going to take a while to drive the point home with me um, <laughs> stubbornness
1: so, yeah and or, or determined maybe perhaps or slow, <laughs> <laughs> and and I think I've heard you say in the past that a lot of people that end up in jail or in prison, um, you know, it could be as high as you know seventy to ninety percent. It's because of drugs, and so you're all too familiar with that life. Um, you know, almost half your life in it, and so you know what um, what kind of that having that perspective that you have does that give you kind of um, you know uh, a, a door in to some of these conversations that other people might not be able to have with an inmate?
0: So I ran into a former inmate recently who um, said the following. She goes, I remember when you came in the dorm and started doing some preaching. And I went, oh, great. Here's another one of those do-gooders. And she said, and then you told your story about drug addiction. And then I asked a couple of questions because you look like a goody (laughs) two-shoes. You don't said, you don't look like yeah. No, I'm not a junkie anymore. So, but she so she asked a few questions and she thought the answers were honest enough that she said, "I came over to you and I sat down in front of you and I said, pour it in." And now she's been out of jail for 6 years, married, children, job, functioning, but she was tired of listening to Here's another person yakety yakking me, mm-hmm. but here's somebody who actually was addicted and stopped, Yeah, and I want to know how he did it, so maybe I can do it too. Yeah. So that connection point probably is the most powerful thing that God equipped me with. You know, everything works for the good of those who are called by the Lord. Well, God took 30 years of addiction and turned it into 30 years of, yeah, I've been there, I've done that, and here's what might work. Hmm. And so it became a powerful story instead of a powerfully sad story,
1: yeah, and, and maybe uh, folks are listening and and, and you know um, it's it's com- almost like cancer. You, you all you know someone that's affected by it. could be a close family member, a friend, a coworker, um, drug addictions, you know uh, it, it's it's something that affects really all of us in some ways. So what would you say to folks out there about what is? What is um, some of the secrets, the keys to kind of um, getting healed and moving past that? It may be, maybe they're going through addiction or maybe somebody else. I know you talked earlier about enablers. Um, what, are, what are some of the things that you think people need to do to start off to kind of get that ball rolling?
0: So if it was my family member, so we'll start with that group there. There has to be an honest conversation. Um, and there has to be boundaries. Um, I work with families that have kids that are, having, that are struggling with issues. And the first thing I want to do is have an honest session where everybody sits down. Not just uh, here's the impact of what you've done to us, but here's the new rules. If you're going to live in our house, you have to be in by dark and you have to be looking for work. If you're not home by seven, we lock the doors, you don't get a key. Don't sleep on our front porch. We will call the police. Deal with your night all by yourself. We open the door again at 7 a.m. and there's breakfast. And you're more than welcome to try again tomorrow.
1: That's what we call tough love.
0: Yeah, but we make it a contract. Mm -hmm. And I allow both parties, the parents and the kid, to negotiate. And we've done it with a husband and a wife in both directions where one's the addict. And just then I say, here's the terms of us staying in this house together. We're not giving you cash. if you need something, I'll pay it. Okay you got to have your insurance. I'll call your agent. I'll get a check to him okay <laughs> yeah, but I'm not giving you cash. period. Um, so for me it's it's accountability and and firm boundaries, not adjustable boundaries. Um, so we have to create an environment where there are consequences for behavior. If you do the right thing, there are good consequences a warm bed, and a meal. If you don't do the right thing, there are consequences. There are meaner people out there on that street that would like to take whatever you think you got. And so go be afraid. Go spend the night in a lake bottom park over on a band shell one night and then come back home at 7 o'clock in the morning and make some new decisions. Mm -hmm. If it's, I'm the addict, and one of the accountability things that I usually require is you have to do something for recovery. Don't tell me you're not going to do it again. That lie's already been told in this house. Yeah, yeah. And don't tell me you learned your lesson last night when you were coming down off the dope. It made, you had some kind of epiphany and you know the secret plan now because I don't believe it. So I need to know what you're going to do. Now, does that mean you join a 12-step meeting? Does that mean you start going to counseling with a pastor? Does that mean you get into treatment? Depends on the level. But it means being humble enough to listen to somebody who knows what they're talking about And you don't make the plan. Yeah. So the only way to avoid becoming an enabler is to insist on boundaries and don't change.
1: Yeah. And in that addict, it's whether giving up control some way, whether it be to a pastor, to a program, to a family member, that kind of thing. Because it's that's the and that's the scariest thing I think is kind of saying that that you know I'm not in control anymore. I'm letting somebody else, I'm being vulnerable, right? And that can be difficult, um, you know. And with inmates, do you find that you, you know, because it's a captive audience, right? I mean, they're not leaving, you know, That's right. because they don't like the show. Uh, so are they, um, do you find that there's a lot of success stories there or there's uh, quite just as many maybe people that um, are going to just make poor decisions and kind of be back in the system, back in the system?
0: So the the saddest thing about addiction is that nobody wants to stay an addict so when somebody tells me i want to quit they're not lying to me now are you willing to pay the price to quit so getting humble submitting doing what you're told by somebody who knows what they're talking about and being held accountable now i can promise you know one of the saddest things that i see is mom or dad or both of an inmate or husband wife of an inmate calling me saying you know this is over and over and so well and then the we're not going to bail him out this time
1: yay (laughs) (laughs) hallelujah
0: i know it's like the beginning of 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 help and then i said but he's going to call you or she's going to call you and they're going to tell you they're going to kill themselves uh if you don't put any money on my books these guys are beating me up or these girls are beating me up they're going to take all my stuff i mean it's They're going to try you because they need to know whether you have the firmness and resolve to live up to what you just told me you were going to do. And once I know that you're for real, you know, when my wife put me out, changed the locks and called the lawyer, I thought for sure she'd change her mind and I'd just be a nice guy, come mow the lawn or do something, Yeah, you know, and she, you know, she was dialing 911 when I showed back up. I got the heck out of there. When I realized that she really did close the door, it became me in the mirror. How are you going to fix this?
1: Yeah. You don't have somebody that uh, maybe you take for granted that you think, okay, they're going to always. T- and it's not because they don't love you. It's, just it's because they love you, right? Um, and you talk about being out on the streets and kind of being kicked out and not really having a home. Um, And now um, you get the opportunity to help folks that are in that position uh, for whatever reason, all kinds of reasons, losing their job, drug addiction, anything that maybe, you know, they're homeless, just bad luck um, and growing up in it. Um, And now you have safe house ministries based here in Columbus, Georgia, where you've got the Trinity and grace shelters for men and for women. Um, so tell me about how how that got started and, and your passion behind helping folks that that are that are in need because I mean these are folks that I mean that's it's pretty rock bottom to be out there and not have a a, a warm place warm meal you know to stay. So <clears throat> and we, we did this because of the jail ministry. That's
0: where everything started, and then. We started the faith-based recovery dorm. We have a men's and women's, which those are both open. Post in the pandemic, we finally got those back up. So we're beginning that slow process.
1: Um, now, how do you get, How does the faith-based recovery dorm work? D- different than maybe other parts of this, you know, in uh, the. So jail. we have a
0: separate cell block, one for women and one for men, where you can apply. I'll interview you, figure out what your story is, listen to some honesty. And you're asking for help. And then in that dorm, we bring in uh, both faith leaders and people who are substance abuse people. So there's NA meetings and AA meetings. We do a Christ-centered 12-step meeting. We do, we use the Life Recovery Bible. So it scripturally backs the 12 steps. And so we we really try to, it's a spiritual battle. So let's fight it on spiritual terms. Mm Mm-hmm. Normal recidivism right in that jail is 67%. Two-thirds of the people that walk through the back door are coming back, most within six months. Hmm. Those are just facts. Wow. Um, so we started having people that were in our dorms, and then they were coming back. And, and I'm going, oh, do we have to change the curriculum? What's going <laughs> on here? You know, they're coming back. And then start interviewing them. Well, I don't have any place to live. I go home. The house I lived in before, everybody gets high but me. You know, I got in a fight with my girlfriend. I smoked a little something with somebody, and poof, I got caught. Um, A female comes into the jail and leaves, and her mom puts her out and her one-year-old daughter because the boyfriend of mom who's paying the bills says them or me, and so she kicks them
1: out. Hmm. So now from the jail, they kind of graduate, essentially, hopefully, to if they need to safe house ministries right
0: exactly so we started shelters so that people could get a different life actually the first thing we did was a little shotgun shack across the street from the jail we we called it the safe house that was the original safe house a little thousand square foot thing with, we had crock pot uh soups and sandwiches every day and people could come by and we try to you just need a place to talk yeah someplace you could trust and you, nobody's going to tap their watch and go yeah you've been here for a minute
1: when i hear safe house I, sometimes i think about like. The FBI or police putting you up somewhere where you're protected. You're like maybe a witness for a trial or something like that, right? Yeah.
0: And we want that. We want that. It's got to be welcoming, warm, inviting so that you feel safe there. Even at the safe house right now, we don't serve paper, plastic, forks, bowls, dishes, coffee mugs, not styrofoam. Because you come to my house, you should be a guest. Mm Mm-hmm. And we wash the dishes and we serve them again at the next meal. And we want everybody to know how valuable they are for us. It's good. So most of what we did was we found people that were coming back to jail and figuring out why. Well, same playground, same playmates, same behaviors. So how can we help them change their playgrounds unless we can get them into a new environment? So hence the housing. Then we have a substance abuse program. It's outpatient. Um... Good relationship with employers here in town where we have people, we can help somebody find a job. That means you can save money. And then when you've been with us six, seven months, you've saved enough money to move into your own apartment. you still got a job. You've learned how to budget because you've been saving. And so now you can go be a grown-up.
1: Yeah. And then and I think, you know, if I remember, we've done some stories on in the past where people graduate and they get certificates, right? I mean, this is a, you know, you, this is where you have achieved something, right?
0: That's exactly right. I had, um, you know, my favorite story, this, when we started doing GED in the jail, um, we kind of got everything going in the right direction and we're teaching and we're fixing to test. And when we first started, we would only test women or men. We couldn't get them both in the same room. we eventually were able to structure a room that would be safe like that. But so the first test was going to be three women. And so I decided the night before the test that I was going to go pray with them and talk with them. And You know, you're not going to learn anything else tonight. <laughs> Don't stay up all night stressing. You know, now it's time to get some rest. Watch a silly show on TV. Play some cards. Just get your mind off it. Mm-hmm. We'll pray about doing your best and do it. And so I got to the third girl. Her name is Rebecca. And she starts crying. And you know those boo-hoo tears? That, you know, that men can't handle.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Over the top.
0: Yeah. And she won't stop. And I'm sitting there across from her and I want to pray with her. And she just gets louder and louder and boo-hoos. And then through this noise and this wet eyes, she looks up at me and she said, nobody, me included, ever thought I could do anything. She took a deep breath and she said, I'm going to pass that test.
1: Hmm. Wow.
0: And she did. Wow. That so. next morning she sat in that room and then the following day took the other parts and got her high school diploma and never, ever came back to jail.
1: Yeah. She believed in herself
0: for the first time in her life. Wow. And that's what that GED instructor did. You know, we didn't, it's a funny thing, but Jason, we, we assumed people that passed the test would have a higher percentage of not coming back. And then people that took the test but didn't pass would be a little bit below, and then people that were in the program would be a little bit below, and then regular population. It's point zero zero three difference between those that passed and those that didn't pass the test. Hmm. And I was shocked. So we started trying to, why? What's going on here? Is it an aberration? No. It's held for eight years. And what we know is learning changes you. Mm. You can't pick up a book and read it and be the same person at the end of the book. You cannot commit yourself to knowing something, put forth the effort to learn something and be the same person who was not doing anything before. And so these men and women are trying and that effort is being rewarded with, I'm better than that. Hmm. And that creates and and that program has a 40 percent return rate. So that's almost half. Of the normal recidivism, right in the jail.
1: Yeah, big difference, big difference. And, and I know for you, you know, uh, you talked about how you know your daily life. I mean, you're you're getting up. I mean, you stay busy all day with the, the different ministries and as as a jail chaplain, all these requests that come in, uh, but that you get up every day and um, and walk uh, at. You said four twenty, is that right? Mm-hmm. So now, and, and to correct me if I'm wrong, I, d- I think I read somewhere that you wake up at three thirty every day. Uh, is there a reason for that, or is there is that, or is there a significance to getting up so early for you?
0: Well, it's hilarious because in the old days, I might come home now.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> now, now you're you're uh, waking up when you are getting home from the party.
0: But you know, um, private time with the Lord, a chance to read Scripture for about thirty minutes, then leave for the park, then come back and my family prayer list and personal stuff that I'm going to pray over in people in the ministry and then have time to take a shower and be someplace by 6 30. So that almost three hours allows me to be physically and spiritually and soulfully ready to go have a day.
1: Wow. Are you getting enough sleep? I mean, you go to bed early if if you have to wake up that early? (laughs) (laughs) Five and a half,
0: six hours. Okay. It's not bad. Yeah, I think it's enough. Okay.
1: All right. (laughs) And um, you were talking about, uh, you know, uh, being a a, a better family man now. Um, Tell me about, um, you know, you've got your three boys that are kind of scattered out, and one of them, uh, you know, uh, deployed uh, with the Army. What does it mean to you to to be able to um, like compare to you know twenty years ago or Mm. or, you know uh, now to have to be a a healthy father um, and uh, and 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 can look at them and and be proud of them and they maybe them hopefully proud of you as well.
0: So to go from that moment when my youngest tells me maybe you shouldn't be around, um, I got ordained. As a, as a reverend, all three of them showed up, hmm. came in from all parts of the country. My uh, middle son was the first to get married and asked me to perform the wedding. Um, I got another wedding next October from my... Uh, my youngest is married, um, but they want to do a fancy one. Um, And then I'm going to be a grandfather in
1: March. Wow. It's like two weeks away. Congratulations. Yeah.
0: So a little boy named Dean is fixing to pop out. Um, And, I mean, for me, it's being welcomed into those moments in their lives when maybe you shouldn't be around. That's that's kind of a neat change. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Dramatic. I mean, a transformation. And do you feel like that... I mean, do you kind of stop some time? Maybe it's during this three hours you have in the morning and you kind of say, man, you know, I, I just, God, I just, I feel like I don't deserve this for all that I've done. Because a lot of people, you know, have that attitude like that I'm not good enough to go to church. Or, I, man, the things that I've done, I, there's, no, there's no coming back from that. So do you feel like that man, I'm just, the grace and mercy I've been given are just just uh, beyond the pale, you know.
0: Maybe that's why five and a half, six hours is enough sleep. <laughs>
1: I uh you know, to whom much is given, much
0: is due. Sure. And he wasn't and, and he wasn't kidding about that. Um I don't think I can earn my way back past some of the really nasty things I've done in my past. But one of my favorite people in the Bible is David. And David's done stuff I have yet to do. <laughs> and God says he's a man after my own heart. I think if God threw a party, Jesus and David would get the two best seats at the house. And I'm going, so all that stuff David did doesn't get in your way, does it, God? I mean, your love is so perfect that it's proven in loving me as is, where is.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. David became
0: king, you know. So I think it's knowing that I can love myself as is, where is that God loves me. You know, I love that. I was in a car lot. So as is, whereas, you know, if that tire turns three inches, you get that piece of junk off my, lot, <laughs> my property. <laughs> you know, I mean, once you've signed that deal, you own that car, get it out of here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, to, and that,
1: to take Neil as is, right? And that's
0: what God does for us. He accepts the as is, was, as was warranty on our lives and says, I'm good with that. Yeah. Let's go from here. Um, And the good news is most of the worst things I've ever done in my life, I've had people talk to me about that similar thing. And I can talk to them about the healing from that place and then the obligation to pay it forward. Yeah.
1: Because, I mean, a lot of the inmates and... Um, the homeless people that you come across in as part of your ministries, um, you know they, you know, you may have been, you know, very well gone through something very similar to what they've gone through, and and uh, to hear for them to hear that story, I'm sure has a big impact. Hope, yeah, it comes alive. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Chaplain, for for joining us. And if if I can, I, I do this at the end of every podcast, but I I love to um for folks that. Uh, have the opportunity to uh, to kind of pray us out, to close us in prayer if you don't mind doing that.
0: Father God, I just want to thank you, Lord, for how much you love us, for putting in Jason's heart the importance of talking about health and not just healthy bodies, but healthy souls and healthy spirits to share the gospel message with people. And Lord, I'm I'm praying right now that this dream that you gave him is rewarding somebody right now who's listening that a life is being touched and changed, that a hand is being extended to somebody who needs a hand right now. And God, I pray for those that are out there that have a family member that's struggling with addiction, or if they're currently wondering if they're in a situation that they need help with, that they'll take advantage of all that you, Lord, provide, and they'll reach out and ask. And God, I pray that you have put us into the hearts of people who can celebrate you, Jesus, all that you do for us, and that we can celebrate together. And Lord, the last thing I'm going to ask is revival. Revival in this country and in this world as you throw this pandemic out and we move forward in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.
1: Amen. And maybe, you know, I'll uh, come out and join you uh, sometime at, uh, what, 420, 430 at uh, Lake Bottom Park for a little walk. Yeah. I can, I can be, we can protect each other. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. So uh, thanks very much, Chaplain, again, and, uh, and wish you the very best on your ministries. You guys are doing amazing work. And uh, and uh, any way we can support you guys and, and kind of get the word out uh, that, uh, you know, uh, that you guys are doing uh, some amazing things with people that need it. Thanks. You know he he, uh, he he tells great stories and uh, really has uh, a great humble perspective uh, about uh, the things he's been through um, and and so glad that he has a relationship with his family his sons now and has turned his life around. I'm sure you know he's very happy about that as well. And I read in another interview that he did you know years ago about you know how he overcame his addiction. He says he got on his knees he begged God to heal him and then he just started being obedient. And he decided that, you know, he was no longer the smartest person on the planet, that he wasn't going to be able to take care of it himself. And he, he got a sponsor. He got in, uh, you know, um, Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, and that world. And, uh, but for him, it was just, it was Jesus that really uh, healed him from uh, that addiction and the things that he went through in his life. Now to the uh, final segments of the Run the Race podcast which you can find on WTVM.com slash podcast tell your friends about it hashtag Run the Race podcast put a review in the bottom of the Apple uh, page for us we'd love for you to say something to us and keep us going as we uh, uh, enter uh, 16 months now doing the the pod here and uh, I look forward to doing many many more talking uh, hopefully inspiring you about fitness and faith and and everything in between Uh, so now for our final segments uh, food for thought dealing with uh, how exercise relates to a drug addiction and a parting gift when it comes to uh, your comfort zone. This is an article I found on WebMD called "Can Exercise Be the Salvation from Substance Abuse?" is actually a commentary written in part by Dr. Mamet Oz, and uh, you're very familiar with him. He's the attending physician at the New York Presbyterian Columbia University Irving Medical Center, and also you know hosts the Dr. Oz Show, which you may have seen. Um, so you know, in this quarantine that we are we are still in. Um, we, you know, there's a lot of concerns. There's been increases in opioid related mortality and concerns with people dealing with substance abuse disorders, um, mental illnesses. And, uh, you know, one of the people, um, that is, is knows about fighting these demons firsthand is Scott Strode. He started sipping alcohol when he was 11 years old. Then when he was 15, there was hard drugs and it was a nine year battle with substance misuse. He uh, was you know, one of the 20 million people across the U.S. with substance use disorder, according to the Association of American Medical Colleges. So Scott, at when he was 24 years old, he was using cocaine, he said, at one time for nearly 24 hours straight, overdosed on a bathroom floor found by his mom. Uh, he said, you know, he describes it as being unsure of how to begin his journey to recovery. And then he found a local boxing gym. And uh, it was kind of being out and about, you have that physical activity. He used that as one of his weapons against battling the substance use disorder. And he poured himself into that physical activity, but needed more. So after nine years of sobriety, about, you know, this is about 15 years ago, Scott founded something called the Phoenix. It's a sober, active community that's helped, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people in recovery over the last 14 years. The Phoenix moved its programs online. You know, during the coronavirus pandemic, you have yoga, strength training, meditation classes, and they reach people in all 50 states with these virtual classes. Um, and 80 percent of active participants in this program, the Phoenix, they're still sober three months later. They worked hard to to lower the barrier to entry. In fact, you know, every class is free. The only price of admission is 48 hours of continuous sobriety. Each activity that you know they center on a, a culture of encouragement and inclusion. So, uh, Dr. Oz says he hopes that Scott's story brings hope to those who may not see a way out. Of the darkness so one of just many examples and and having that physical activity boxing or anything else to uh, to get you started and you know get you doing something active having some kind of purpose or something to do in life not just to kind of say I'm bored I'm gonna go do drugs and that's going to make me feel better I need to escape like you know chaplain Neil Richardson talked about and the parting gift some inspiration for you from a Neil Donald Walsh uh, his quote is life begins at the end of of your comfort zone. Let me say that again. Life begins at the end of your comfort zone. And uh, it's funny, I, I I thought about this because just recently, if, if you ever watched the show American Idol, one of their judges, one of the best musicians, artists of all time, Lionel Richie, he, he used this quote when he was talking to uh, somebody that was real nervous, but very talented. And he told him, you know, uh, life begins at the end of your comfort zone. And uh, you know we don't think of it that way. Sometimes, sometimes we just want to live there. We don't want to go too far. We we are afraid to fail. Uh, but that's when uh, the special things can really happen. Um, you know, with different parts of your life. So getting out of your comfort zone is very important. Uh, again, thank you so much to Chaplain Neil Richardson for talking to us and closing us out in prayer as well. Um, he's a great man uh, that uh, has been through a lot in his life and uh, is really um, inspiring and motivating others to, to live productive lives and not uh, go down that, that, that dark path. Uh, that, that he went down and, uh, he gets a chance to talk to people that are homeless, people, inmates in jail and help them through that. And I hope that, uh, you, uh, maybe have learned something from that. If you, so you can hit me up, uh, send me, uh, you know, uh, something that, you know, you like about his interview or any of my previous 55 plus interviews I've done about fitness and faith. You can send me an email, jdennis at com. So, uh, thank you so much again for, uh, listening And uh, until next time, God bless.